Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. My patient today is Bill Addison. Bill is the food critic for the Los Angeles Times. He's a James Beard Award winner, and he was the roving correspondent for Eater National for a couple of years. He's an incredible guy, and this session is really interesting. We get into lots of good stuff. So without further ado, here's my session with Bill Addison. You've done a lot of podcasts before. I have, I've done enough of them. Yeah, yeah. you know what you're doing. <laughs> you know, did you just get back from like an insane trip around the world? I, it wasn't around the world, but mm. yes, I uh, took a 15-day vacation, which is the longest I've had in a very good while. Mm-hmm. And uh, the main part of the trip was Beirut, was Lebanon. That's so... <laughs> I, love your, I love your obsession with Lebanese food and Lebanon. Is there... Where did this all start? So my best friend is Lebanese. Okay. That's the bottom line. Gotcha. So um, she lives in Atlanta. And the last couple years when I was uh, roaming the country for Eater as its national critic, I lived with her Mm -hmm. and her husband a lot of the time. They were very generous. And um, so we've been talking. I've grown to love her family over the years. And we... I've been talking about this trip to Beirut for years. You went together? You went with her? Yes. Okay. So her younger brother was getting married to a woman from Estonia. And so we were the, most of the family was in Lebanon for nine days together. And then we all went to Tallinn or Tallinn, Tallinn, Estonia Mm -hmm. to, um, for wedding festivities. And then I had like a quick solo jaunt through Istanbul. So now I'm curious in terms of your, interest in Lebanese food through your friend and then actually going to the country and eating yeah. it there. I know you wrote about this, but for those who didn't get to read your writing, sure. I, I mean, was it everything you wanted it to be? And what about it do you love so much? Um, it really resonates with just like the how I personally like to eat. First of all, variety is a cornerstone to a lot of the eating mm-hmm. in in Lebanese food culture with the meze. So you'll have um, plates of olives and labni, which is yogurt that's been strained so much that it almost resembles fresh cheese. Mm-hmm. And um, f- maybe, I say for breakfast, maybe you'll have ful, which is like um, simmered dried fava beans or a hummus dish like fate, which is chickpeas and yogurt with like crisp pita in it. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I don't know. Then I love lamb, which is like the, I would say the principal meat of Lebanese food culture. And it just hits all the the points that I love. Like it's creamy and um, meaty, but also really fresh and clean. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It just, it just really resonated with me. And I, I liked it fine when I ate it in restaurants like as a restaurant critic, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't until Kellyanne's mother came to visit in Atlanta and cooked us a big dinner that I was like, oh, like this is what Lebanese food is. Oh, interesting. And then I loved it. And when your friend, did your friend find it amusing how taken you were with the food of her culture? I mean, did she? She, she I think her parents were more, she's a fairly like a, a beautifully cynical misanthropic person. Mm-hmm. So like nothing really like surprises her. Yeah. I, I would say she was more amused than anything maybe, but then she turned me on to this um, woman, Anissa Halu, who is mm-hmm. um, a Lebanese Syrian cookbook author. She was like, you should follow her on Instagram. And uh, Anissa is like just a fearless traveler. She'll go anywhere. She wrote a book called feast that won a James Beard award last year. It's really her magnum opus, but and she has this incredible head of hair that she's like, 
like had forever. And, and it's like her signature thing. And when I went to London for, to report for Eater, um, I met Anissa. She just happened to be passing through Mm -hmm. and she lives in Sicily now, but was kind of transitioning then. And we really hit it off, Mm -hmm. you know, just one of those like, yes, like meeting of the souls. And so we met up a year later in Dearborn, Michigan, which is really like the seat of Lebanese restaurant culture in America. Oh, really? Michigan has, yeah, one of the largest populations of um, Arabic Americans in the country and including a lot of Lebanese and Syrian um, communities there. How did that come to be? It's just like a migration of Lebanese people up through into Michigan? Yeah, there is a a museum that even explores all of that in Mm -hmm. Dearborn because it's, it's, the culture is so rich there. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so we should say for people who don't know who you are, I mean, Hello. most people, <laughs> but you are the food critic or one of two food critics for the LA Times. Yes. You're a James Beard Award winner. Yes. Um, and you were the roving food critic for Eater for how many years? I was years? Eater's national critic for almost five years. And I'm so excited to have you on today. I mean, we've become friends since you've moved to LA and we knew each other a little bit beforehand, but I love, I mean, what's so fun for me is, you know, with this podcast is sort of exploring people's psychology and characters, but I am so fascinated at the psychology of a critic. <laughs> I think Here we go. <laughs> but just because I think that, um, you know, I think it takes such a, an interesting combination of sensitivity, but also confidence to be a critic. Yeah. And I mean, and before we get into your lunch, um, I do <laughs> want to ask you, like, do you enjoy being a critic? Oh, yeah. I've been doing it for 17 years now. I mm-hmm. mean, I really... I think the secret is I'm not really good at anything else. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a great writer, so <laughs> Thank you. we all enjoy that. Yeah. I, know, I don't know how to write about anything else other than restaurants. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, yeah, it, it, I got into it really because I loved food so much. I started loving food when I was eight years old. Mm-hmm. My parents created a monster. They took me on a vacation and they went to some nice restaurants and I was really into like what was happening. Where Everything was it? About, you know what? It was Williamsburg, Virginia, which <laughs> kind of like sounds cheesy, yeah. but like to an eight year old, we went to like the fancy Williamsburg in there. Um, and the, the sommelier would come around and he had those like, big, you don't never see them anymore, but these big like test event things, uh-huh. these like metal cup things around their neck, which they used to like taste your wine. I like, remember that. It. Right. Like on yeah. cruise ships, I think they exactly. still do that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But or that's probably, or something. Right. Yeah. And in France probably. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Um, and um, we went to a Southern restaurant and I had spoon bread for the first time, which mm-hmm. is like a cornmeal souffle. And I was like, God, like, what is this magic? And the server, whose name was Russell Bridgeforth, I never mm-hmm. forgot him, was like, you, you know, remember the server's yeah. name? Russell Bridgeforth? Russell Bridgeforth. Maybe he's listening right he's now. He's not. He died. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I followed along. Like, when I became a journalist, like, one of the first things I did was look up Russell Bridgeforth. Wow. We're yeah. really getting into your therapy session now. This is just supposed to be a quick cursory, like, game. I mean, you're really ready to go. <laughs> this, this is, is like, how... the end of Ratatouille with, like, the moment all flashing back for the critic. Um, you're just starting out that way, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, this is great. So this is that, that's where it all began for you, was back yeah. then. Yeah, yeah. And my parents sort of, yeah, created a monster doing that. I didn't, I didn't really like kids' food mm-hmm. very much after that. Um, so I just wanted to eat like crab cakes all the time. I'm from Maryland, but okay. like not just any like mediocre crab. I wanted like lump 
crab meat with a minimum of filler mm-hmm. and like you know cocktail sauce better have a lot of horseradish okay. in it <laughs> were your parents as particular as you were about food my parents enjoyed dining mm-hmm. you know and they as they went along and they um you know made they they both grew up very humble mm-hmm. and they um they were in real estate and they did okay for themselves in the 80s and so we um, traveled a little more when I was a teenager and ate in nice restaurants a little more. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we're very, I have a younger brother and we're four very different people. Mm-hmm. And so the only time we ever really, really enjoyed each other's company altogether was when we were eating nice meals in restaurants together. Wow. So this is already, I mean, I feel like may as well lay down on the couch. We're, we're getting into it. So perhaps we just jump in and I should ask you, Bill, what did you have for lunch today? So I will just tell you, and then we can talk about why I went to Dune. Oh, okay. I went to well, Dune. Well, I can guess why it's in my neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> but yeah, that's too easy. Okay, I know yeah. it was too easy, but I think that's part of the psychology of mm-hmm. why I went there. Um, so Dune is this fantastic little restaurant. Um, I really hate, hate, hate the term Mediterranean for rest restaurants because it doesn't mean anything. It's sort of now there's, you know, a lot of very smart food writers have written about how calling restaurants Asian or pan Asian is really insulting. Like, Mm -hmm. what are we really talking about? What cuisines, what specificity, what heritage, what, I just read a a wine writer in Bon Appetit was tired of the word funky to describe Uh, wine. So it feels like there's a lot of catch all terms that are starting to lose their meaning a little bit. Right. And you particularly as someone who I'm particularly interested in the cuisines of the middle East. Mm -hmm. And so I would say, you know, Dune is a sandwich shop, and it's probably, if you have to give it a label, it's probably Israeli. Mm-hmm. And so I had the big sampler plate. Okay. Which is uh, hummus and uh, falafel and like lamb, like ground lamb patties with like pickled cabbage and olives mm-hmm. and um, flatbread, which I didn't eat much of. And then I got some labneh on the side because I was hungering for that labneh that I talked about earlier. But they served it in a sweet version. Like it was almost like granola with yogurt, like a dessert. Mm. But I want it savory like they eat it in Lebanon, which would be like with a lot of olive oil on top of it. Well, I feel like we have a lot to unpack here. <laughs> I mean, first of all, I think it's I, I'm, I'm like I'm latching onto the the stuff we talked about before we even got into all this, yeah. which is that this cuisine that you know the Lebanese food that you found so alluring, um, and, and that it hits all your checks all your boxes. And then for your lunch today, you had a meal that sort of fits that description. You know, it's sort of light. How did you describe it? Creamy. Um, oh yeah. All the all, foods of Lebanon. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Creamy and a little meaty yeah. and kind of sharp and yeah. All those, those are things. all those. So th- these are Fresh. like your flavors. Yeah. I mean, the, so I really do. I mean, it's funny, I guess it's really basic, but I like creamy food, right? Like yogurt is one of my favorite things. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I am really picky about hummus and dunes is like, dune is such a good for this kind of food. Like a great, like all purpose stop. Like mm-hmm. it just makes me overall happy. If I get really nitpicky and, and put the critic hat on mm-hmm. and analyze everything, like, is it the fluffiest hummus in town? Mm-hmm. No, but it's good hummus. And, um, is, you know, the lamb, like the most tender in town? No, but mm-hmm. it all like works together. And it just, it just is a plate of happy for me. Now I'm very interested in okay. something you just said, which is the turn the critic 
part of your brain on right. and off. Yeah. I mean, how does that work? How do you, how does, do you feel like almost you have to have like two personalities in a way or you have two different ways of thinking? How does it all? Yeah, I wouldn't, I mean, I'm a Gemini. So <laughs> okay, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but uh, That explains it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're done. (laughs) Uh, uh, No, um, I guess, but I do have a a sort of radar that's on all the time in restaurants. I mean, first of all, when kind people cook me beautiful meals. Such as myself. Yes. I've made Bill dinner and I had to learn the lesson actually with our mutual friend, Besha Rodell, who Uh, was the food critic for LA Weekly for a while. um, And she's a wonderful writer. And I had her over on my last podcast, which we won't even talk about because it wasn't a great podcast. (laughs) It was called... um, the clean plate club and the premise was I threw a dinner party oh. and I put a microphone in the middle of the table and all you heard was people's knives and forks <laughs> scraping against the plate. So that was not a success, but Besha came over and I was so nervous to have a critic come over that I hounded her the whole meal. Did, I made chicken and whatever. I made, and I was like, was it too salty? Was it, too, I think I did, you know, and I must've annoyed the crap out of her. So when you came over and you had just moved here I just wanted you to enjoy yourself. You were very chill. Good. Yeah. yeah. I, thought, and, I realize that's important when you have somebody over. Yep. Um, but wait, you were saying something about that. When somebody cooks for you as a critic. Yeah, no critic hat on. I'm just so grateful mm-hmm. to eat in someone's house because that happens maybe once or twice a month mm-hmm. if I'm lucky. Yeah. Um. And so, yeah, I just, um, I feel like I it's on most of the time in restaurants whether I want it to be on or not. Well, it seems like the purpose of turning the critical hat on is that people are going to be paying money for this food and you need to tell them, you know, people, hardworking people who maybe don't get to go out to dinner all the time, like th- your job is to say, is this as good as it can be? I mean, is that how you think about it when you yeah. turn that on? It's and not I, you're trying to be mean. No, but yeah. I, I do take that part of the job again, I guess, because I've been doing this for a long time. You know, food writing has gone through so many important nuances and there's so much cultural thinking around what food writers put out into the world these days. But I do think that there is a place still for kind of that traditional vein of restaurant criticism, Mm -hmm. which is just to say like, is this a place that you want to spend your money or not? Mm -hmm. And, you know, if it's obvious, if I don't have to state in the way I'm writing, like, I love this place. Mm -hmm. Like, I hope then I'm painting a specific enough picture so that the reader would say, aha, like this is something that appeals to me or no way I'm not going to spend like that kind of money on a place just for some good desserts. But this kind of makes me uh, want to ask you about yeah. the possibility of a sadistic thrill that might kick in when you get to write an evisceration of something. I mean, is there a part of you that takes pleasure from getting to tear down? Um, no, not anymore. Yeah. You know, I'm honestly, I think the older I get, the more sensitive I get about sure. that. Probably because... Yeah, in some ways, I guess the the more sensitive I've grown myself. So when I was a younger critic, I did kind of it was not, I, I'm not a mean person, so it, it wasn't like wahahaha, mm-hmm. like let me tear them down. But sometimes I was just like, this isn't good. Yeah, and I'm just gonna say this pretty bluntly and mm-hmm. maybe sometimes a little unkindly. Well, when I started out as a food blogger, I got some notoriety because my parents took me to Le Cirque. 
Yeah. And, um, and, and I just felt like everything about it was so insulting and terrible and the food was so expensive and they just were such jerks. So I wrote a post called only a jerk would eat at Le Cirque <laughs> and it went viral and it was just like this huge thing. And I, it was almost like I did like open Pandora's box. I didn't even know what I was doing when I did it, but I did feel outraged when I wrote it. Yeah. But then I remember, I'll never forget this. Um, so it was Sirio Maccioni, um, is, was the proprietor sure. of Le Cirque. But his sons were Mauro Maccioni and someone else. And I went to a party like a couple months later and Mauro was there and he approached me and he was like, you know, I forgot, he was very gracious. He was like, thank you for your, po-, you know, and having to be face to face with someone that I'd written this thing about, it just, I, I felt like my stomach was in, in my feet and it was this dawning awareness. Wow. There are consequences. There are people behind yes, all this. Absolutely. And, mm-hmm. I think because I worked in restaurants in my twenties before I became a restaurant critic when I turned 30. Mm-hmm. So I was always aware that there were people mm-hmm. in there. And, but in, in a way, sometimes that made me more sensitive, like particularly when service is surly, mm-hmm. I'm like, this is your job like right. you chose you choose to be here so i was a server i chose to be here i was not a surly i was disorganized mm-hmm. but i was not mean right you know? so i don't know so um do you find yourself in restaurants i i noticed this with my parents but i feel like they're the way they react to how they're treated in restaurants seems to trigger like primal feelings in them that if they feel like they're being ignored it's like the mm-hmm. it's, it's something gets stirred up in them that is so <laughs> primal, and that's true for me. I mean, Craig, yeah. my husband, will tell you that if we're sitting in a restaurant and somebody doesn't come over after a long, time, I, I have I get so upset, and I don't mean to, but did you feel that way too? I do feel that way, but it's interesting, right? Because a, a, a food critic has to bring into like what it's just like to be a person too. Mm-hmm. Like I get paid to eat in restaurants, right? But also, I. I am a human being and it doesn't feel good. Like I went to kind of a prominent, I'm not going to say it out loud, but I went to a pretty fancy downtown restaurant this week with a friend who I wanted to have a good conversation with. And they, this restaurant has a beautiful atrium and it's sort of like, that's the main part of their dining room. If people really know LA dining scene, Mm -hmm. they know what I'm talking about. And they tried to sit us in the non atrium part. (laughs) And I was like, I don't want to sit in the non atrium part. I want to sit in that beautiful room. And they said, well, there's some seats, the bar. Okay, sure. I like hanging out at a bar. And then like a bartender, there were three of them and they huddled on the other side of the bar and ignored us for like, Mm -hmm. 10 minutes almost. And I was fuming right. by the end of it. And it never completely uncolors a situation. Like it's my job to be like, okay, service issues, check. But your job is to sit here and taste everything with a clear, compassionate mind. But now I'm curious when you say you're fuming. Yeah. How much of that is you bringing, you know, like You're, being Mr. Critic, like, do you know no, who I am? No, 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 like, no, not that, at all. No, okay. I mean more like sort of like how I was talking with my parents, how like it stirs up whatever, you know, maybe fear of being ignored. Fear, you know, do you think like when that happens that you are, it, it's this, you're having sort of the experience that anyone in that situation would have, or that it's your psychology that is being triggered in that moment? Yeah, I would, I would own that it's my psychology that's being triggered mm-hmm. in that moment. I think a lot too about how would other people feel if sure. they're not approached for 10 minutes. So, but it's a dual thing. I'm certainly in touch. You know, I would, I would say then like, you know, my friend is, I'm 47 mm-hmm. and my friend is older than 47. And so I was like, 
is this ages? Oh, is it like, what is it about us that's making you not want to approach us at all? So like, you are bringing your own. That's my stuff. Yeah. That I is would never put that in an article. Sure. But that is, I am aware enough to be, to remember as you ask these questions, mm. like that's what is, was running through my head. Which I think it just makes you human. I mean, right. you're a human. And it was yeah. interesting because we went last night to Jar, um, oh, yeah. which I love. And we had this uh, waitress and, you know, I was with a bunch of friends um, and we loved her. We absolutely adored her. She was wonderful. And yet she did this thing, which I, and this might speak to my psychology, <laughs> but we would, we were all, we all chose a glass of wine. We did wine by the glass. Yeah. And so I would, I was going to order a Gruner vet leaner and she's like, Ooh, you know, I don't love that. She goes, you know what you might really like is the Viognier. And I was like, great. And then similarly, somebody ordered like the Syrah. She goes, can I suggest the Chateau Neuf de Pop? You know, and as she was doing it, my brain immediately went to, she is upselling us. She, the, the, the wines. Were the she, ones more expensive that she was suggesting? I you know. It's what's so funny is that I didn't even check by the end of the day. We were so blitzed by the end of the day. <laughs> right. But I was saying that was my psychology. Like ah. there were two ways to look at this situation. One is this is a knowledgeable server who is sharing with us her inside tips about which wines are better. Yeah. Or this is somebody trying to get us to spend more money. And, yes. and I, it was in my psychological wheelhouse that <laughs> I was a little like raised eyebrow. Like, you know, I know that the Gruner is $14. I don't know how much this Viognier that you're recommending is. Right. So oh, I think we all bring our own yep. stuff with us. We do. But you're not going to escape my uh, clutches <laughs> here. So where were we in this journey? So we were talking about you being a critic and the different hats you're wearing, turning it on and off. And you were at Dune. You ordered this food. So you were saying with the hummus, you might have been more critical of it had you been a critic in that moment. But What's right. What's honest is that I have never voiced these criticisms about Dune's food ever like mm -hmm. out loud. I remember I went with Besha the first time I went with to Dune when she was still here. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh my God, it's so good. You know, the falafel was still kind of having its m m early moment right now. It's kind of ubiquitous, but there was a moment like seven years ago or so when, when what good hummus is, what makes good hummus, is it herbaceous inside? Is it super crispy mm -hmm. on the outside and sort of like soft inside? And what are the spices? And, you mean the falafel uh, or the hummus? The falafel. Oh, yeah, falafel. Okay. Yeah. So um, I thought the falafel was super impressive at Dune. Yeah. And so now that I live here, I would will just show up at Dune every once in a while and just be like, yeah, this plate of food, you know, is, is just comforting and good. And I, but I've never written about it professionally. But what I want to ask you now is yeah. about being particular. Yeah. Like, was that always true in your life growing up? Were you very particular? No, because I enjoyed like chicken tenders with honey mustard sauce at Hula <laughs> okay. Hands and thought that that honey mustard stuff was really like cutting edge coolness. Mm -hmm. But um, I, as I became an adult, I've wandered a lot. Mm -hmm. So I wandered a lot in my twenties. You know, my father's, my father's lived in the same County his whole life. My mother's lived in the same state her whole life. Were both of them in Maryland? Maryland. Okay. Yeah. Every, my whole family lives in Maryland, but mm -hmm. I have a predisposition to wandering. Mm -hmm. And so I, I went to school for singing and acting. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then I didn't know. I don't know how much we can curse, but I don't yeah, know. This is just I don't know how the fuck I was <laughs> going to make a living in the world. I just uh -huh. didn't. I I was pretty lost, and I I guess the the truth is I wasn't like <clears throat> so focused beyond anything else that I knew how to like break in. You know, just 
do it until you got apart at all costs. Mm-hmm. Even then, the food was kind of getting in the way of that almost. Like it was the 90s and mm-hmm. I was living in New York and I was like, well, you can save money for a headshot or you can go to this noodle place that Ruth Reichel just wrote about. <laughs> so you were and, interested in that age. Yeah. So you were already like, right. sort of reading yeah, about Yeah, in the early 20s, in my early 20s. Even through college, I cooked more for friends in, and they were impressed. But then, yeah, so it's just been a journey. And then I, the really the first man that I ever really loved was a chef oh. in a restaurant. Wow, there's so much to go into here. <laughs> oh my God. We might need two hours. I was, I was his pastry chef. You were so, his pastry chef? Yeah. Wait, I want to watch this porn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it was hot. I was okay. young. <laughs> Wait, the pastry chef and the chef. Was he gay? Yeah. Oh, so you guys had, or did you have a relationship? Yeah. And did other people in the kitchen know what was going on? Not at first. And then we ran off to London together. And then they sort of... <laughs> Wait, this is the call me by your name that I want to watch. Wow. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I need to write a memoir. Is but, he still cooking? Uh, he doesn't cook in restaurants anymore, but he does still cook. I was and guessing it was Otto Lenghi. <laughs> <laughs> no. no, that would have been hot. But it, <laughs> no, was, it, it was okay. in Seattle. It was okay. in Seattle. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and we're still friends. Great. Yeah. Yeah. He and his partner are coming to visit like in three weeks. Amazing. So, yeah. Wait, so you were saying, so you were a wanderer, which I, I find fascinating in terms of your, um, your ability to be a critic. Cause you have to be a wanderer to be a good critic. You have to go into different cultures, different cuisines, different restaurants. So that's a big part of who you are. And you? that's what I did when I was, so my best friend who was the first guy I ever hooked up with mm-hmm. when I was 17 as a conductor. God, I hope my parents aren't listening to this. They're <laughs> squeamish. No shame There's that. no yeah. shame, yeah. yes, but they're squeamish. So oh. everyone else can hear this. I don't care. Okay, um, so I was uh, 17. He was 19. And he is a piano player. Mm-hmm. And he became a quite successful Broadway conductor. Really? And so he travels the world. Like He primarily works with Disney and their musicals. Mm-hmm. So he got a really plum gig conducting for the first touring company of Beauty and the Beast. Okay. And I was lost and like not sure what I was going to do with myself. And so I just ended up wandering the country with him. Yeah. But, and I was just super interested in food and, and honestly, like what was affordable often were, you know, were the different um, minority communities Mm -hmm. in cities. So I would eat a lot of, I started to understand that, like what Sonoran food was when we were in the Phoenix area mm-hmm. or I ate through like the, the international district in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of good Indian restaurants near the university in Seattle that I was interested in. So that, that was really my, my way into exploring restaurants. And one thing I love about your writing, and maybe this is something we can talk about in that period of your life, is the attention to detail, though. So that, you know, when you write about one of the meals you'll have, you'll go into great detail about, you know, what what the background is of this dish, how it's traditionally made, what changes the chef made. I mean, was that always how you were? Yes, I was always curious. And I wanted to get it right. Mm -hmm. I still want to get it right. I Mm want to be respectful and... And because there are so much, so many intricacies to to every dish, mm-hmm. you know, from every culture around the world, if I don't know these details by by rote, 
I trust that my readers probably, a lot of my readers won't either. Of course, mm-hmm. the people from those cultures will know as well. And I hope I'm doing them and their culture justice. I think you wrote about this recently, right? Didn't you just review a restaurant? I'm going to totally blank on what cuisine it was, or but it felt like... Nigerian? Yeah, I think yes. maybe that was it. And a UK you, African cuisine, yeah. And I, maybe I read, did you do a newsletter? Or you wrote about something about like the preparations you did before. So maybe somebody asked you... I could be just yeah totally no 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 that was part of my yeah. newsletter that was like the ask the critic thing yeah so, so I how I, you prepared to go review a, a cuisine that you'd never had before yeah and it was I had, I've had Nigerian food before but I I've not had it I'd never reviewed a Nigerian restaurant before and mm-hmm. so it was really important for me to get it as right as I could and then that like feeds my own interest and then I hope that transmits to people too well I'm. What it makes me think about is the two the two different roles of the critic. Like one is to you know point out the flaws in a place that might be charging a lot of money, but the other is to open people <laughs> up to new experiences and just you know. And I think that's what everyone loves so much about Jonathan Gold. Absolutely, and um, I love that about like Calvin Trillin for a long, long time ago. I used to read him. You know, I feel like some of my favorite critics have always even Emily Nussbaum in the New Yorker will talk about a TV show I've never heard of. I t- yes. I usually turn to critics to show me things or share things with me that I would never have known. And it seems like that's an opportunity for you or something you enjoy. Yeah, I would say that my I split my time almost evenly between thinking about restaurants that um that you wouldn't you would not like necessarily know about that mm-hmm. I think are are really um exciting in some ways and I'd like to share what I've learned there with with you. Um but you know, it is at the same time it's I don't know. That's the great thing about being in Los Angeles. Like, mm-hmm. this is the greatest food city in America right now, 100%. That's so exciting. I'm so glad to be yeah. here. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I feel, you know, I, I, I doubt myself constantly as mm-hmm. a, you know, as a human being, but having wandered all those years for Eater, I, I say that with some authority. So you doubt, <laughs> doubt yourself constantly? Is that really true? Uh, yeah. So are you a critic? Are you critical of yourself? Sure. Oh, yeah. My ex-partner was like, <laughs> I've never met anyone who's harder on themselves See, than you are. Wow. See, this yeah. is like, this is a great window into the mind of a critic. It's, you know, that it's not just the outside world. I think that the people assume that if you're a critic, you're just, you know, going around the world with a scowl on your face, no. but it's all directed inward to I you. question myself constantly. How about yeah. your own cooking? Do you, are you critical of your own food that you make? Super critical, but almost maybe to the point, I don't cook much right now. Right. Yeah. I'm, I wish to get back to that some, like even one day a week, mm-hmm. but I'm, because I'm so underprepared, like that usually means not just swing you by a farmer's market for a few beautiful things that I can pair with the staples in my pantry. It mm-hmm. means like starting from scratch. Well, it's interesting because like sometimes knowing so much about something can kind of inhibit you because it's, you're so aware of all the things that can. Yeah. Like I love to cook Lebanese food, but now, um, I'm like scared to cook for my Lebanese friends a little or Mm -hmm. scared to cook these, these dishes. Um, when I was living in New York briefly, I cooked Lebanese food for a guy on a date Mm -hmm. and the chicken I undersalted the chicken and it, he was like, he was like, yeah, this is nice. But I made, there's this dish, Luby Bill Sate, and there are some variations, but it's basically green beans, often pole beans in Lebanon with a lot of olive oil. Zait is, is olive, olive oil. And 
um, and tomatoes. Mm -hmm. And man, I nailed that dish. And he was just like, this is incredibly good. And like the next day when I was heating up that chicken, I like salted it harder and put more ghee on it. And it was magical. And I was like, damn it. If you'd only (laughs) done last night, you would have like nailed that one as well. So you're even, even though he enjoyed it, you could have even been better. Yeah. Wow. But I'm curious, okay, in terms of, <laughs> in terms of being a writer, because yes. that is your that is your craft. I mean, that is what you are actually putting out in the world. Yeah. So how hard are you on yourself? Hardest. Yeah. Hardest. I think, you know, I, I, it would be, this will be an interesting conversation if they're listening and I hope they bring this up. I think I'm harder on myself than my editors are. Really? Yeah. I mean, that's not to say that, that I don't need editing. We all need editing, but I, I really... I give it everything I got every time. Can you walk us through the process? So, you know, I just read your review of dialogue in, um, Oh, that was, yeah, that was more like a newsletter. That was a a newsletter. So let's say, um, uh, when is this going to run? I'm not quite sure yet, like a week or two. Okay, great. All right. So we'll just talk ahead then. So, (laughs) um, the, the review that comes out this Thursday is a restaurant called Bon Ton downtown. And it's pretty fancy. Mm-hmm. It's pretty, it's a modern American restaurant. And when I say fancy, I actually mean it's pretty pricey. Okay. But I think that the cooking, so the guy is a pastry chef mm-hmm. and the desserts are just like astronomically good. Okay. Like, wow. Mm-hmm. And then, but what I am taken by is how he's thinking like a pastry chef throughout the, the, menu like even in the savory parts as well Mm -hmm. so there might be like a roast chicken that he prepares two ways and it's just like perfectly arranged on a platter and so i should make my reservation before your review comes (laughs) correct do it yeah Yeah. and it's like so it's fastidious in a way that pastry chefs really highly trained pastry chefs like him can be and he makes like these beautiful little tartlets with an uni cream with a perfect like canel of caviar on Mm. top i mean it's just like Fantastic. So, okay. I went three times. Mm-hmm. I went four times actually, because they do pastries in the morning as well. So I went three times over the span of a month to um, try the restaurant in um, different nights um, with different numbers of people um, to um, in different moods uh, and with different servers. And this you know, is the course. gathering phase, right? You're just right. Gathering this is the report. This is the reporting. Right. Um, and I don't even look that deeply into the background while I'm reporting. I'm just experiencing. Mm-hmm. And then the pastries, the morning pastry situation is super good. Mm-hmm. Like this, a strawberry ricotta Danish that might be my favorite in the city right now. Wow. I mean, it is super good. I might so have to go there. You like should right now. go. Yes. <laughs> I'll see I'll you in you, 20 I'll minutes. Okay. <laughs> um, so I collect all this and, and there were some things that I noticed that I didn't love. Like there was, there were, there was enough, like four or five dishes that kind of looked like they were stuck in springtime. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're talking in August and the, it seemed kind of like an April menu. And I was like, why isn't it evolving? Is it because, um, he's so fastidious that it's hard for him to kind of improvise like newer savory dishes. And so he was happy with how those turned out and kind of kept them like a English pea, ravioli situation kind of back in springtime. So, you know, this is everything I think about. So then I sit down, let's say the day before I actually have to turn it in. And do you get up in the morning, first thing in the morning? I'm a morning writer. Okay. Yes. In the, in your apartment? In my apartment. I have done, I mean, this is a whole other thread, but 
I didn't have a home for two years. Right. And so now that I have a home, I, so when I was, I was either writing in, in friends guest rooms Mm -hmm. or I was writing in coffee shops or hotel rooms, of course, lots of hotel rooms. So I don't ever write anywhere but my own apartment right now because it feels so good to have a home. And this feels like such a key part of your psychology since we're <laughs> analyzing it is the nomadic nature and then the, yeah. you know, sort of the need now to nest. and be, yeah. yeah, and so the ebb and flow of that. Mm-hmm. I would say it wasn't until uh, this trip to Lebanon that my wanderlust started percolating again. I, I hardly wanted to leave Los Angeles this year. I've hardly traveled mm-hmm. after wandering for five years. So you have your apartment. So I have my apartment. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm a really serious tea drinker, mm-hmm. but as I've gotten older and sleepier, I I'm, I drink coffee in the morning now. So I make pour over. I don't eat much breakfast. Are you in the I'm bathroom? Never... I mean, are you like, have you gotten ready for the day? Are you? Yeah. Uh, no, I just kind of roll out of bed, mm-hmm. make the coffee. Sometimes I, it, it's nice, you know, I try and exercise as much as possible. So maybe I've gone for a walk. Um, and that's a whole other line of conversation. And that is like a whole line of conversation. Burn off all these calories. That yeah. You're <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Okay. okay. So you're writing in the morning. So I'm just in like, let's just say I'm in um, baggy t-shirts and shorts that don't fit me so well. And I'm just like sitting in a chair or at a desk. And I start by just, so I have a, I had a great teacher, Natalie Goldberg, who mm-hmm. wrote a book called Writing Down the Bones, among many others. And she's my great writing teacher. She's really how I learned to write. And so which the fundament of what she teaches, which was born out of her serious study of Zen Buddhism is writing practice. So Zen is a practice. So she looks at writing as a practice. And for her, that often means like a a timed unit where you can just let it, let everything go, like just rip across Mm -hmm. the page. And so I'll just be like, 20 minutes, Bill, go, bon temps, like, give me everything. And so I'll just keep my hands moving and I'll be thinking about like, well, that was incredible dessert. I love that souffle. Um, the wine list was really cool. Um, that Psalm like recognized me um, from when I'd been in before. And that was cool. She remembered how that I had an orange wine the time before. So that she recommended like an interesting um dare I say funky red wine. <laughs> um, it's fine by me. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, so I I get all of that out onto the page. And then I think for a, for a minute, like, what's the good story in? Mm-hmm. What's the lead? How am I going to bring people in? What resonated with me enough that I wanted to, to start with it? And it was, so again, thinking about the main points of this restaurant for me, that he is a pastry chef mm-hmm. and that the savory dishes reflect that as well. I thought about a crab cake. I'm also from Maryland, so mm-hmm. I resonate with crab cakes. So it's this like, it's like almost a, he almost makes it like a crab sausage, essentially, like, like presses it mm-hmm. um, with scallop mousse. And then like, like it's in a tube shape from like the pressing. And then he like slices them into discs and then stacks it, like grills it with like a thin slice of pandemi, like really like a nicely crumbed bread that he's shaved super thin and like, dyed with squid ink and then like grilled it so that it fuses to the crab cake and then put slices of avocado on top. And then this like big erupting salad of greens uh, on the top. So I was like, you know, that's a pretty, that hits a lot of points. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to, I'm going to enter this with the the crab cake. And are you, do you have a reader in mind when you're writing? Are you thinking, who am I writing for? Who's reading these words? Oh, it's been a long time since anyone asked me this question. (sighs) 
I'm sort of, I don't have any one specific person in mind. I'm writing for everyone. I'm mm-hmm. writing for myself to do the best I can. Mm-hmm. I'm writing for my editors mm-hmm. because uh, I'm very good at absorbing uh, my editor's corks so that they edit me as lightly as possible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, of course, I'm writing for readers because I want to give them a good reading experience. This this profession is dying mm-hmm. as as journalism shifts and its models change and publications don't have the money to spend for restaurant critics to pay for all their meals, which the Los Angeles Times absolutely does. So I feel an enormous amount of responsibility. I have a great job. I've worked really hard in this profession for a lot of years. I need to keep bringing it so that people still think positively around restaurant criticism. Yeah, and you're doing a great job of it. It makes me wonder about the language because... I find it, you know, when I when I would try on my food blog to review a restaurant, I would struggle because I would you know eat a dish. The way you just described that dish was beautiful. I mean, I mean it was like painting a picture. <laughs> I, mean, I found I found myself not wanting to come across as pretentious right. when, when I was writing. My whole thing was like I'm just a normal person and I'm not a you know. <laughs> yeah. But there was something also sort of um you know, I it seemed like I wasn't doing service to the hard work it was sort of like that Le Cirque review. The, mm-hmm. le- the lesson that I learned later was like, oh my God, there are so many people and so many lives that this post represented. And and so yeah. for, but I guess I'm to get, bring it back to what I was going to ask you about. Like, is do you have a sense when you're writing about food that you don't want to be too highfalutin versus being writing for? You know, when I ask you like who your who your reader was, do you sometimes get carried away and like you write a bunch of stuff and you're like, whoa, this maybe is too flowery, too... Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, I I would say that people who are crit- critical of my work would probably be most critical of my writing style. I mean, certainly I've gotten criticized for like leaning a little like writerly or purplish or, you know, however grandiose like my whole career. I guess when you talked earlier about sort of the like the the confidence versus the the self questioning or the sensitivity the the sensitivity i guess that's where the confidence has to come in for mm-hmm. me i just i want to be a really good writer mm-hmm. first and foremost and so if sometimes i mean believe me like particularly during the eater years if i like wrote like a really crazy high-minded meta for like they were like bill enough no, calm down yeah, <laughs> yeah calm down <laughs> okay. like strike like yeah. come up with something else do you remember then, one but in particular oh i <laughs> wish i could because i there was one i remember it was about turkey and the wolf in new orleans and i remember i wrote something really convoluted and amanda clute was like dog no <laughs> and then i was just like I said something like, this is, you like get a PhD in stoner food. And she was like, great. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You just make it a little more relatable. Yeah, exactly. I mean, are there critics out there whose um, style of writing is something that you, I mean, are there different critics who you kind of put on a spectrum of this one's very flowery, this one's very down to earth? I mean, is that how you think about the other colleagues? Yeah, it's interesting. I don't think that they're, you know, like super flowery really doesn't cut it in the modern world, Mm -hmm. right? So... I think more, you know, Tejal Rao is such a beautiful writer. I love it. I want to have her on this podcast. You should. Yeah. yeah. She's like just the most thoughtful, exquisite person. I mm-hmm. love her. So um, so I love how Tejal writes. I love how my my co-critic Patricia Escarsaga mm-hmm. writes. Um, just she has such a clear mind, and I think that translates so beautifully 
onto the page. A clear mind. That's so, I mean, that is something that nobody really thinks about when being a writer, but it's like, yeah, I mean, if you can get your kind of, because I feel like good writing kind of brings somebody's sensibility onto the page. And that's, that's why I felt like I knew you before I knew you. But you know what I hate in food writing? Hmm. I hate the cliche of somebody biting into a peach with the juices dripping down their arm. (laughs) Everybody's written that at some point and it drives me nuts. It's like, okay, one person can write that, but not everybody can write that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think it was probably who let's, it was, if it wasn't MFK, uh, MFK Fisher, it was Ruth Reichel. Somebody wrote it and that's fine, but nobody else can say that ever again. (laughs) All right. But now we need to do the thing that we didn't do yet, which you started to do before therapy, which is to go into your childhood. Oh, wow. Grew up in Maryland. Okay. You talked about your parents being realtors, both of them? Yeah. Well, they were in, they had a small real estate company. But yeah. now, were you sitting at the table growing up and your mom would present the dish of food and be like, mother, this is not prepared <laughs> properly? Or, yeah, I mean. Well, I called her mom or mama. Okay. Like, like being yeah. good. Like, it's <laughs> the Eastern Shore where she's from is very Southern uh-huh. in its sensibilities. So I feel I'm a Southerner, particularly after living in Atlanta more than, more in my life than anywhere else, other, any other city. Uh, so. I mean, was I critical of her cooking? Yes, probably. Okay, so there yes. you were. You were there, the critic, but not necessarily. I mean, I'm also like not a dumb. I was not a dumb kid, so yeah. I wasn't like going to be like, "Oh, mom, if you'd <laughs> only cooked these chicken breasts for 45 seconds less on each side, they might have actually been juicy." Instead you filed of like, a review, like, right? Yeah, mother, exactly. Here's my review right? Of your, yeah, uh, that I just leave it on the chair when I'd get up from the, <laughs> the dinner table. Chicken was sad. Yeah, she would have set me on fire. <laughs> but like, when did this? I mean, but you did say like that you maybe were a little critical, and did that emerge? Whatever the sensibility is that that's starting to be, you know, um, particular. I think I asked you this earlier, but even in terms of growing up in a house with parents and a sibling, like, where did you find yourself? Being a critic as a kid? I found myself being critical in restaurants, mm-hmm. certainly. And I I remember, um, you know, I remember, I can definitely recall experiences like there was a restaurant called Chez Fernand. You know, again, it's the 80s. Mm-hmm. French restaurants in Baltimore are still like the thing. And I had had a Grand Marnier souffle there that was really like perfect like textbook like billowing over the top how old were you uh like say like 13 14 okay and then we returned to the restaurant like a year and a half later and it wasn't as good Mm. so i was very much aware of like the sense of continuity in restaurants which is again part of the reason that i go three times am i having consistent experiences or is it all over the place and were your formative food experiences in restaurants versus being at home Yes. I would say the answer to that is yes, because um, I, I'm I'm very jealous of people whose parents were really into cooking mm-hmm. or that come from whatever like heritage or background or community where the food that's on the table is part of who you are, part of your identity, part of the sense of place. Mm-hmm. Like none of that came through in our cooking, except for very rare instances. Like my mother made really terrific, like potato bread that she made into cinnamon rolls. Mm -hmm. And she only did it during the holidays, but like, that was such a treat. And she put them in a big green Tupperware, you know, thing and bowl. And I, you know, it was a, it was a, 
a ritual to like come home from school and I was so happy that they were there and I'd heated up. Have you had one since? Like, as no, an adult? I've um, never made them. That'd be interesting for you to sort of, you know, see yeah. if you can recreate that taste. She put in raisins in some of them because she liked raisins, but the rest of us didn't like raisins. Mm-hmm. So she didn't put them in. And then I liked the raisins older when, when I was older and wish she made more with raisins. My yeah. my mom used to buy me um, <laughs> these like rainbow cookies from the deli, you know, the red, yellow, and yeah. green. And like to this day, I mean, now I see them and I know they're filled with food coloring. and Exactly. Um, and right. The f- yeah. Dough conditioner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, but terrible I still flour. love right. them. If yes. I go home, I just went home and I ate them and it's like, it's just so, there's something so nostalgic and I guess Proustian, if that's the right word. But just, <laughs> yeah. it does, it's amazing how food can just bring you back to a... Yeah. I mean, sorry, I was drifting off for a moment there. I haven't <laughs> thought about those potato rolls yeah. in a long time. So Yeah, I feel like if a chef is listening in LA, it's like that could be one of the um, <laughs> new items on the menu. They don't care. <laughs> they should just do what they no, do. Do what they do. <laughs> but um, but, I, but, I, but I, I'm trying to connect the dots a little bit because the way you talked about that souffle... And then thinking about your career, it's sort of like something woke up in you that where something magical happened in a restaurant for you that was meaningful, right? So, you know, I, I think this this comes up an awful lot mm-hmm. when talking around food. But, of course, it was the, the connections. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, it was the sharing of the meal. And for me, I guess what I noticed was that we were all, like, really present, mm-hmm. you know, f- eating – Brings you into the present moment. So it wasn't just about the souffle. It was also about the dynamic with your family. Yes. All being there at this restaurant. And enjoying each other and sort of understanding and almost like supporting each other's Mm -hmm. like, like who we were in relation to food. Like my mother's fish better come out hot. Mm Mm-hmm. Or like she's sending it back. Mm-hmm. And so like we were all kind of leaned in always when my mother took her first bite of fish. Because if it wasn't hot, we knew like flag down that server and send it back. Mm-hmm. And then we'd like work hard to all give her tastes of our food while like she waited for the fish to be as hot as she wanted it to be. And my brother liked really gamey gamey meats and he's like a hunter and a mm-hmm. hike like a serious camper as an adult and uh-huh. you know my father liked the very like continental the filet mignon like filet oscar like with mm-hmm. crab meat on top of it whatever so it seems like the way you're talking about it it seems like a restaurant was where your family got to kind of come alive for you and sort of it's where you felt the most connected to your family yeah maybe i felt like i knew these people best when we were in a restaurant together it makes me wonder when you go to restaurants now and you were talking about bringing your friend to the bar the other day, but also just when you do, you, are you sensitive to how everyone else is enjoying? I mean, does some of that carry over now when you're reviewing a restaurant? 100%. And I, you know, people are often like, you know, I eat anything. So, you know, just order whatever. And usually if it's the final meal I'm eating before I review a restaurant, I have a pretty good idea of what I want, but I also want it to be a democracy, mm-hmm. our meal. I don't want them to feel like they're like they're not really a part of it, that I have just invited them along as a mouth. You know, I so that's important. But you know, Adam <laughs> as a mouth. I, so yeah, right. Like, no, no, right. Yeah. yeah. I live out my life in restaurants. Right. That's the weird thing about being a critic. And and I don't think about whether that's good or bad. It just is. Sure. So well, I don't think it is good or bad. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it is. It just is. And but in that parameter now, you know, 
I get to know people that I'm going to date or mm-hmm. fall in love with in restaurants. I get to know people who are going to become rich friends. Mm-hmm. I get to know people who are colleagues and, and, or people that, you know, are, I might do some sort of professional business with. Mm-hmm. So I, I have to bring my humanity with me to a restaurant. I just don't bring Mr. Restaurant Critic with me. And what's, what's becoming clear as you talk about it is it's like this is such a perfect job for you because the restaurant as an entity is so important to you. As, yes. You know. And I'm comfortable anywhere in mm-hmm. any restaurant of any kind. I'm also aware when people aren't as comfortable as I am. And that's in, that's interesting to me. It keeps me, you know, watching them reminds me like this is a privilege, this job. Like not everyone, you know. Some people might read my review and save up for Bon Temp, and that might be their fancy meal of the year. Mm-hmm. And so if they don't enjoy it, that's going to suck. So what is, when you go into a restaurant, you have an experience, like, is there a thing that more than anything else that matters to you in terms of a restaurant experience? I mean, is it, does it really ultimately come down to the food? Does it ultimately come down to the way it makes you feel? I mean, 100% it comes down to the food first but certainly also to the way that it makes me feel. But that is secondary to the food. You know, if, mm-hmm. even if a restaurant makes me feel um, really warm and, and special, I'll, I understand what makes me feel warm and special. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not necessarily going to translate to the reader, you know? And so it's my job to differentiate those two and, and find ways to, to subtly communicate both of them. Well, this brings us back to your lunch today at Dune Falafel. Dune Falafel. So if you were to be reviewing your lunch, um, what, you know, how, how did it make you feel going there and how was the food? I'll be honest. Like I am on, on deadline for a big project Mm -hmm. and I had ideas about like going to, so I wrote a newsletter about that trip to Lebanon Mm -hmm. and I, asked readers for recommendations for Lebanese restaurants in the city. I've been to a couple and they haven't really blown me away. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wanted some, some insight. And I, so I wanted to, I had this idea that I would like have some space to like go run to and have like a big Lebanese meal and walk in here and say to you, Adam, like, I've been to Lebanon recently. And <laughs> yeah. I just like went looking for Lebanese food in Los Angeles. Yeah. But the honest truth is like, I sat staring in front of my laptop thinking hard about restaurants this morning. And by the time it was time for me to eat lunch, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of time. So you just went to Dune. So I went to Dune because I knew it was near your house. and I knew it would evoke yeah. kind of essentially what I was looking for. But in terms of the actual experience of going in there and sitting and eating, yes. did you find it pleasant? Did you find it crowded? Did you find it? Yeah. So it used to be a madhouse. Yeah, that's what I Right. Yeah. So I don't know why. I, I have a good guess. It's the end of August. It's a hot day. People are like this, always like right around this weekend, I notice in restaurants, mm-hmm. people, they thin out a little. Okay. Because people are coming back from vacation mm-hmm. or, or um, and tourism is down a little like in, in any given cities as people like resettle it's school time again. So I think people are like staying a little closer to home. So I breezed in and out of 
of Dune today, it wasn't even that busy. So you had a good experience. I had a great experience. That's great. It's my, it's a solo spot. Yeah. I eat there like probably once a month, once every other month. And, and I'm, I always eat by myself yeah. and I always just feel the, the um, Amba, the, which is like the spicy mango. Oh yeah. I love that. Ch- yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. My, yeah. Oh. Wait, so I'm, I'm, we're approaching the end of this podcast. Oh, wow. okay. and, uh, you have a therapist clock. I do. Nice yeah. I, like I do. I also have a box of tissues in case you were to get emotional. Oh my God, you do. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't cry. Here. And I have a therapy dog on the couch. That's the best. Yeah. In case that. you need to pet a therapy dog. He seems very <laughs> riveted by our interview. <laughs> He's fast asleep. Um, I uh, begin every podcast by asking what you had for lunch, but I like to end by asking where will you be going for dinner? Oh, is it a secret? It's not a secret. It's even better than a secret. I have a date tonight. Okay. And I don't know where we're going yet. Now, this is a great line of questioning, though, because when the LA Times food critic is going on a date, does the LA Times food critic tend to pick the restaurant? or 100% okay. I tend to pick the restaurant. This is not a first date. Okay. And so um, I am... Just leaving it a little to chance, which so is fun for me. Does like, that mean I never that, do that. Wait, you so say your date is choosing the restaurant? No. Okay. We'll figure it out mm-hmm. when we kind of figure out what, like, are we going to see a movie first? Mm-hmm. Are we like, what part of town are we going to be in? And so we're going to, I always have ideas in my pocket. Sure. Because like, if you're anything <laughs> like me, and I'm sure you are, like, if Craig says, let's go to the Arclight, the first thing I think in my head, before I even think about what movie we're going to see is <laughs> what <laughs> restaurants are near. There's Stella Barra. There used to be Hungry Cat. Not there anymore. Uh, All the Thai restaurants yeah. love to eat Thai is close to there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's not walking distance though, right? Oh no, I guess I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah I like to walk out the movie. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. Nice. But okay, so but now um so you're gonna make this plan tonight. Now, do you can you tell me about like the negotiations that go on in terms of if you're about to go on a date and somebody says you say like, Oh, you know what would be great is if we go to this place and they say, oh, I'm not really in the mood. I mean, how is it can you roll with the punches or Yes, get- I can roll with the punches. I what I will say um that happens without fail um in my in the course of my dating life is that first it's like, Oh my god, that's so cool, you're a food critic crazy. Wow, good. Yeah. I will do anything, I'll go anywhere. Like, that's amazing. You know, and uh and I, you know, I tend to date open-minded eaters. It's mm-hmm. not it's not really gonna work <laughs> sure. if you're yeah. like incredibly picky. But then, you know, after a while, the excitement wears off. Mm-hmm. And then um it's sort of laborious to eat in restaurants all the time. Now, a, pl- a pleasure and sure. a privilege. Yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying. And you're anticipating like, all the letters. You like, not, yes, sure exactly. No, right. I know. Because, like, rule number one of being a restaurant critic is that, like, you can never, ever complain to yeah, anyone yeah. except other restaurant critics. So I'm not complaining. But I'm saying from their perspective, mm-hmm. it starts to get laborious. Like, I, I just want to sit home and, mm-hmm. like, can't we just have a bowl of pasta and watch Fleabag? You know, but. This is the person you're dating. This is the person I'm dating. Right. right? And so. Um, or they don't say anything, but they start to get sullen in restaurants. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're just exhausted. Right, yeah. Yeah. Because it does lose its luster. It's like almost probably like working like at a Christmas store or something where it's like, <laughs> right. you know, Christmas is not that much <laughs> right. fun when you're living right. Christmas trees Surprise. all day, exactly. all year. Um, but have you ever gotten into an argument on a date over like a dish or like, have you ever gotten into an argument with somebody who deemed a dish bad or this isn't good and you thought it was and then wrote a review? No, because... I just let them have their opinions mm-hmm. because I know I'm going to have the final word. Right. Oh, wow. Okay. That's a lot of power. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I got to go, I got to go with you on a review. Do you remember? Yeah. You have, 
I can't believe it's been only, it's been more than one, right? Oh, maybe it has. Yeah, two. The one yeah. I remember, maybe I shouldn't say the name of the restaurant. You can say it. Let's say it. Let's it say was it. Tartine. Yeah. But it wasn't the menu. It was Alameda Supper Club. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, my memories of that was that it was all, it all went, went very smoothly. Um, I'm trying to think of like anything, like any glitch happened. I feel like maybe it's, then let me know if this is something you don't want me to bring up, but I do think they did something. They like, they did something nice for us and you didn't like that. Correct. They brought over an extra course. Yeah. So I got, what we're saying here, people, is that I got recognized. I strive to be anonymous, but more and more I'm getting recognized. But I wasn't I convinced to, that you got recognized. I thought they were just, maybe they thought you were a repeat customer that came back a couple of times. I think they recognized me. Okay. Is this but, okay to talk about? Yeah. Okay. It's fascinating. Like, yeah, yeah. this is the real talk okay. right here. Yeah. So you got recognized. So I got recognized and... um You were upset about it. I mean... Yeah. yeah I don't like getting free food. Right. Like you... Because it made you feel compromised? It, it just... Yeah. It's also like... I didn't order this. You're not the every the average person is not going to get something spontaneously free. Now, mm. if you're a regular, of course, like maybe they're going to be like, "God, we appreciate your business. Like, here's an extra dessert that we just put on the menu that we're really proud of. Would love to know what you think." Mm-hmm. But otherwise, like it was a fish dish that they brought out, mm-hmm. and I was pissed. Yeah, I remember you were really yo. <laughs> and then you know what I do, like. Uh, it depends on the circumstance. Sometimes I will just look a server dead. If it's really obvious what's going on, I can look a server dead in the eye and be like, take this back. I, we didn't order this, or this is a mistake, or I'm not accepting this. And, and the subtext for that is that you're finding it like almost like bribery, right? It's yes. like almost like they're slipping you a $20 Correct. bill. Correct, like, right. Give us and an like, I don't here. want, yeah, this right. isn't. So then what I do, if, if it's awkward, like let's say that was a table of four and there was a lot of conversation mm-hmm. going on. And I didn't want to be like, halt, Mm-hmm. Halt this meal. You, sir, have like, you know, done <laughs> how, me an injustice. How dare and, you? Yeah. <laughs> and like, so in that case, I just pay for it. Mm-hmm. You know, so I tack it onto the bill. Oh, is that what you did? Yeah. Oh, I didn't even notice. Yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. That's what all critics do. I am not, right. I'm not unusual in that. That's just the, the MO. But it was helpful to mm-hmm. understand the rage that you felt because it, it does, <clears throat> I, I, I didn't think it as, I didn't think of it as bribery at the time, but I guess that does make a lot of sense that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Bill, we've covered so much ground here. <laughs> do you oh, feel good got, about it? I do, but it's not just how therapy is. Like sometimes it's like you're rolling and the session is over. Yes. Yeah, so, well, thank you so much for coming. <laughs> On. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, I learned the... things about myself too. I'm going to go take notes. Oh, good. Well, that's great. All right. Well, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Al. Right. Acast powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. My name is John Kasich. I'm the former governor of Ohio, former presidential candidate. And I'm Jordan Klepper. I'm a comedian. We have a new podcast together called Kasich and Klepper from ACAST and Treefort Media. Why is Kasich first? Well, first of all, it's alphabetical. K-L. And I ran a whole state once, too, by the way. You ran a mid-sized state, to be clear. (laughs) You know, a lot of people are going to think, oh, well, this is going to be about politics. No, it's not. It's going to be about life. We're going to talk about politics, I'm sure, but we're also going to talk about the things that affect us. And I might ask for a fatherly advice of, like, how do you raise a child who won't become a Republican? <laughs> Welcome to Kasich and Klepper. Listen and subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. A-Cash, 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 A-Cash recommends. recommends.